This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This episode was created in collaboration with Apple TV+. Before we begin, I want to make something clear. A kid your age charged with first-degree murder is tried as an adult. I swear, I didn't do it. We believe you. They're saying he looks smug and remorseless. This is going to follow him around for the rest of his life. It's a mistake. We're going to figure it out. Do you have any doubts about Jacob's innocence? No, of course not. Can't leave his fate up to the courtroom. My only job now is trying to protect our son. You can be a good man. Or you can be a good father. This is damaging. This is evidence. You're scaring him. Good. He should be scared. I'm scared. There was no normal to go back to. Just before. And after. Hello, and welcome to the special episode of Little Gold Men about the Apple TV Plus series Defending Jacob. I'm LaToya Ferguson. And I'm Joe Reed. We are here to discuss the adaptation of William Landay's novel Defending Jacob, created by Mark Bombeck, who wrote Outlaw King and War for the Planet of the Apes, among other films. Uh, and all eight episodes are directed by Morton Tildum, a Best Director Oscar nominee for The Imitation Game. It also stars Chris Evans and Michelle Dockery playing the parents of a high school boy accused of murdering a classmate. And later in the episode, you'll hear Joe talking to Chris and Michelle about their work together. Indeed. It's a very good interview. I will, uh, no spoilers, but they are both very charming people. I know that'll come as a shock that uh, these beautiful Hollywood actors <laughs> are charming, but they really are. Latoya, I guess to start off, how did you feel about this sort of, it's an eight episode TV series, but it is very much in that mold of it's the same writer, uh, Mark Bombeck, and the same director, Morton Tildum, for all of it. And so it really does feel like you sort of that that cliched eight-hour movie kind of a thing. But I think it pulls it off pretty well. I do think it pulls it off very well. And I think there's enough meat on the bones of the story and the way they tell it that it does make sense to like stretch it out to these eight episodes. Yeah, I, I started watching this. It had already dropped the first several episodes at the beginning, and then it was releasing them. Uh, Apple, Apple TV Plus was releasing them week by week. And I think by the time I hopped on, five episodes had been released, and so there were still three to come. And so I started watching it sort of like semi into the evening, and I ended up staying pretty late. I was like, well, I got to get through all the ones I have, because every time you get to the end of an episode, it was so good at that thing that TV shows do where they're going to give you a little bit of like, if not a cliffhanger, like some kind of impetus that like you want to jump into the next episode. And so it didn't just feel like your standard, I'm going to chop up this narrative into eight episodes. It was like the propulsion forward, I thought was really good. Yeah, it's you're absolutely right. There was always just that one final beat uh, at, at the end of an episode that made you like, well, I have to see where, you know, 
especially when you're getting to the buildup of the actual trial, because there's so much set up to that. And obviously we have uh, the flash forward or the present day clips, but that's a different thing. So when you finally get to the actual trial, you're like, well, I can't stop watching now. I, I, have, right. to, I have to see this through. Right, uh, right. And I think it builds not even necessarily suspense, but I think it builds in a way where you're like kind of on the edge of your seat waiting to finally get to that, to the day, because as much as they would want to not get to the day, obviously these characters, you know, that's what's going to happen. They'll do that thing where at the very, like in the last four minutes of an episode, they'll like cut to a character you maybe haven't ever seen before. And you're like, wait a second now, like, what's this guy doing? What's, what's his deal? What's this little like classmate of Jacob's, you know, typing into his computer or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to sort of shift into, obviously, the big draw of this show is it stars Chris Evans and Michelle Dockery, who, uh, as I mentioned to them when I interviewed them, you'll hear uh, later, obviously, they are so defined by this last decade of, like, playing these two very, you know, popular and recognizable roles. Obviously, uh, Chris is uh, Captain America in the MCU movies, Michelle is Lady Mary in Downton Abbey, and... I liked how these were very different characters without them feeling like, oh, I have to go to like the complete opposite extreme of what I was doing. This is definitely some real kind of meat and potatoes drama, family drama. And it was interesting. It was interesting watching them in in that kind of environment. It was. I think uh, Chris had an interesting role to play because in, in theory, it is kind of just like a standard Chris Evans role, you know all-American, you know, normal guy uh, who's dealing with this stress, but they kind of peel back the layers for his character where where it's not like he's just a normal guy, you know, the the parts of his personality that uh, are less than flattering, that part. And it's like, it's very subtle, which is the thing. And it could have been really hard. Uh, I think it was very hard to play this role. And I think Chris Evans does a phenomenal job. And Michelle Dockery as well, which, this is another character. This character could just be the wife, you know, the mother. Yes, right. And, and she she steals the show, honestly. Uh, She's really good. She gets some really, like, big, heavy emotional scenes. I think one of the things that the story does to that end that does it really well is a lot of the times when you see a movie or a TV series where there is just, like, the main character and then the wife. Mm-hmm. And they're always sort of like the wife is there to support the husband. And in this, they're both on, like, very different wavelengths where even just, like, the information that they have is very different. Mm-hmm. He's keeping some secrets from her at the very beginning of the series. And then she has, she keeps sort of flashing back to these moments from Jacob's life when he was a kid about, like, were these signs that I saw that I never really knew about like that he could have been capable of harming another another child and they don't always tell each other these things so they're all they're not exactly at cross purposes but they're sort of uh sometimes like perpendicular to each other which i thought was really good mm-hmm. and then you also find out like there are certain things that he does know from the earlier you know in jacob's childhood but he just never interpreted them the way she does either and he's like oh it's right. just fine you know he was just a kid where she's seeing obvious red flags Right. Well, so much of the show is what things that you observe about your child or this child in the in the in the show are benign. And then all of a sudden, once you view them through the lens of, oh, there's been this murder, his classmate has been murdered. Now, all of a sudden, the video games he spends all day playing don't seem quite so harmless. The chat rooms that he's in and talking chat rooms, got him a billion years old, um, <laughs> whatever, Facebook uh, pages that he's in. Um, And the comments that he's making don't seem quite so innocent. And all of a sudden, the fact that he's 
kind of a quiet boy. Mm-hmm. Now maybe is that is that a bad sign? Is that dangerous? What does it mean that he's not reacting to this? What does it mean that he wasn't emotional about this? That kind of thing. Yeah. And it kind of like, it just keeps your head kind of spinning and churning. Mm-hmm. So we have a clip from the show that I want to sort of briefly set up, but at some point, Cherry Jones shows up. She's going to be the lawyer for Jacob and she prepares Chris Evans and Michelle Dockery's characters for like what this is going to be. And she's like, you know, first and foremost, make no kind of reaction to the press. You want to be completely sort of like unfazed by all of this because anything that you do will be interpreted and yada, yada, yada. So in the beginning of this clip, uh, Lori, Michelle Dockery's character, is watching the television coverage. And even with that, the pundits are still sort of uh, interpreting everything and it's always in the darkest possible light and she's really struggling to deal with that. And then into this, Andy, the Chris Evans character, uh, he's got this secret that he is preparing to tell her. So that's this clip from the show. The body language, the cold stare, the avoidance of any eye contact. It's not a good look for someone accused of a crime of this magnitude. He's out cold. To me, it suggests a lack Probably of... Probably sleep the whole night. Quite frankly, it confirms a lot. I don't think this is a good idea. Have you seen what they're saying online? What they're calling him? I gotta block this stuff out. They're saying he looks smug and remorseless. He's not even 15 years old. Oh, honey, it's par for the course. What's gonna happen when he sees this? Nothing's ever going to be the same for him again. This is gonna follow him around for the rest of his life. Lori. What? What, Andy? Listen. I have to tell you something. Something that's going to come out soon. About Jacob? About me. So now that we've sort of uh, set that up, we can get into, I think, some spoiler territory. If you haven't seen Defending Jacob and you want to go in as spoiler-free as possible, go, you know, watch it and come back. Um, We'll try not to give away too much. But so at this point, we enter into the sort of deep, dark secret of Andy's character, which is his father, played in the film by J.K. Simmons, is in prison for uh, committing this violent crime. And then these ideas of oh, does this, like, run in the family? Does this does this thing that now you know about Andy make you question not only him, but Jacob and Lori? It's sort of, like, going through her head like that, too. So we got to see J.K. Simmons in prison, which is the first kind of role I ever saw J.K. Simmons in, because the first thing I ever saw him in was Oz, where he was the scariest prisoner <laughs> ever. So um, I don't know. I was very psyched to see J.K. Simmons show up. Um, J.K. Simmons, Chris Evans, father-son duo? Uh, yes, please. Also. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. We never knew we needed it. I, I do actually love the moment uh, where Laurie, uh, Michelle Dockery's character, says, you know, you have his eyes, which uh, that's unfortunate for Andy, obviously. I, I was uh, going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great moment, uh, but uh, it, it's a little different uh, when your father is a murderer. He's such an interesting actor in that... Um, I always say this about somebody like Gene Hackman, too, where it's like I can instantly buy him as both like the ultimate good guy or the ultimate bad guy, whatever he needs to play. Whereas like something in something like Juno, I'm just like, oh, you really are like the most wonderful dad. And then in this, within like a second, I'm like, nope, worst person in the world. Like absolutely scariest man alive. Like He's an absolute 
dirtbag in this show, which if there's one thing where you can definitively uh, put a pin in the type of character someone is on this show where you're just like, what's the truth? You can at least say that uh, Billy Barber, J.K. Simmons' character, is just a trash man. Yeah. His introduction into the show really helps you sort of pivot from, at the beginning, it does seem like it might end up being more of like a crime procedural because Andy is uh, assistant district attorney. And a lot Mm -hmm. of it is like, oh, what to do if you're the DA, but it's your son who's being accused and whatever. And it pivots away from that into definitely more of the family drama angle while still being like, Andy still knows the ins and outs of this kind of thing. Those were the parts that I really, really loved was all the times he was trying to sort of like use his expertise to be like, here's what's going to happen here. They're going to try to do this. Don't say this. Don't do this. But then once his dad shows up, it's just like, oh, okay, now it's... um, I mentioned, I said before, just like sort of like murder running in the genes, which... Mm -hmm. which, it veers into this kind of like psychological mumbo jumbo, and so and and the parts that really hit for me are when it landed more as, oh, it's just him and his dad, and he's just like struggling with this like legacy from his dad emotionally, and I'm like, that's that's sort mm-hmm. of the sweet spot. Yeah, it's a nature versus nurture discussion that gets very literal when you know we're going yes. to getting into the murder gene, and I think yeah. that kind of. It's kind of like a detour in this story because murder Gene or not, honestly, you know, if he, he if he killed the kid, he killed the kid. Right. Um, so it's a detour in the story in general that it can get kind of iffy, but like they course correct eventually, you know. Yes, I think so too, especially when you get into that like final episode or two when it really starts to when Lori really goes sort of off the off the end of the diving board when it comes to her doubts about Jacob. One thing I thought was interesting, I watched, um, I saw an interview with Jaden Martell, who plays Jacob, and he had said that in talking with Morton Tildum before uh, filming started, he asked, like, so did Jacob do it? And Morton Tildum's like, I don't know. Mark Bombeck doesn't know. You figure it out for yourself and then don't tell anybody. So I thought that was, that would have been a cool way and I do end up asking uh, Chris and Michelle about that, too, about like, oh, so now I'm playing the parents. And not only do I have to wonder, did this character do it? But like this kid who's playing this character, he knows and it's in his head somewhere. And you're still like, I thought that was a that was a cool way to set that up. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Uh, and based on what I could tell from the book, I feel like it's more definitive, even though they don't say it, that he that Jacob did kill right. Ben. Yeah, right. And here, you know, you're constantly questioning, you know, is he truly off like in that way? Or is he just, you know, kind of an antisocial kid, too? Right. There are moments where I'm like, oh, he totally did it. And there are a lot of moments like, no, he didn't do it. It really plays on this idea of like the unknowable teen, because teens can be really like inscrutable just as a rule. And so now all of a sudden it's just like, you know, how do we how do we interpret that inscrutability? And He's not taking things seriously, but, you know, that's also, that is definitely a teen thing. Right. Where, like, you you see the interviews with all the kids, and you're just, they're just like, can I go now? Basically, it's it's kind of one of those things where, and they, they also don't realize, you know, the impact of the things they're doing. Like, he's yeah. playing a video game, and he's uh, online, he's like, I'm going to kill you. And he, his dad is trying to explain to him, like, they can record that. And right. A, kid, a kid's just not thinking it. Get off social media, so he makes a fake social media account. Because he wants to know what's going on 
it's not even a, that's not a psychopath mentality. That's just a kid mentality, not right. re- realizing the larger picture. Right. He's watching. He's got these like sketchy like porn searches or whatever, and it's just like, is that just a kid like you know fumbling around with learning about you know all this stuff early on in his life, or is it? Does it mean something else? Also, like, shout out to Jaden Martell for being, like, the go-to spooky teen these days, where I had just seen him in The Lodge, and he's, again, just sort of just like, God, he's just like, he's really... And again, he uses that silence really well, where it's just like, he's not going to give you much, and he's going to have you uh, read into a lot of it. And I don't know, I think he's really good. Also, I want to say, shout out to Cherry Jones for being the best. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Agreed. Uh, I'll get to Jaden first, and then I'll talk about Cherry. Yeah, 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 which yeah, is, yeah. Uh, So for Jaden, I guess it's, it's kind of perfect casting uh, as the son of Chris Evans and Michelle Dockery. Uh, but he's, this is, I think this is his third thing he's done with Chris now. He yep. played young Chris, actually, in the movie Playing It Cool. So basically, he is just a, a young Chris Evans, uh, but with a little creepiness going right. for him. And then Knives <laughs> Out, they were cousins. Yeah. So yeah, just keeping it fully within the family. Yeah. yeah, and, Ch- and Cherry Jones uh, as Joanna is uh, just a, a whirlwind, honestly. And I do love the touch of, you know, you have Andy giving her crap earlier, and then he yes. immediately goes to her as he knows she's the best. Um, right. She's like instant gravitas. She's just like like a pinch of Cherry Jones, and it's like everything, all of a sudden, it's just like, you will defer to her to everything. Everything she says in this show, I'm just like, yes, do what she says. She knows what she's talking about. She's the best. Yeah, this is definitely uh, kind of a moody gloomy show but I, I don't think it like it goes like too much into you know tragedy or, uh but right. she does kind of provide i think there's like a little pep in her step that doesn't so much add levity but it just makes it so even in those like more serious legal scenes you're just not completely depressed this entire time which i think honestly the fact that you're not depressed the entire time you're watching this is really a big selling point for the show the creators talked about this idea of a new england noir which feels kind of right for this, like, especially like the visual aesthetics of it are sort of like, sort of noirish. And they mentioned Mystic River as kind of a guidepost in, in what this kind of a story is, which I think Mystic River is maybe a little more operatic. Maybe part of that is just sort of like the pitch that Sean Penn brings to everything in that. But like, <laughs> even you think about the the end of that movie where Laura Linney sort of goes and her, her kind of Lady Macbeth monologue or whatever. And this movie doesn't quite seem to be quite that operatic, but like, I definitely did think of that as I was watching. It's very New Englandy. Yeah, it is. And it's also, again, it's not too much where you're just like, okay, I get it. There are like certain New England accents showing up, but it's not just like a bunch of caricatures. There was like uh, the bailiff or whatever in the courtroom who had like, it's an obvious like Boston accent, but it wasn't like something like pay attention to this. It just, it's kind of one of those things where it's just like, this is where we are. Not everyone has an exaggerated accent. It's just some people obviously have that. And it's just part of it. It gets to, without doing the accents kind of thing, but it does get to, to the kind of, parochial nature of these kinds of towns where it's not just that their son is accused, but now all of a sudden their neighbors are looking at them different. They mm-hmm. know the parents of this kid who who got killed. And there were a couple scenes there, especially sort of like as the series goes along, where they're like, they get out of court for the day and then they go to get a burger at like a local place. And I'm always in my head, I'm just like, just get takeout for God's sake. Just get takeout. Everybody's looking at you so strangely and so accusatorily. And it like, you can tell it like really bothers them. I don't know. I thought it did that stuff really well. 
Yeah, it is a little touch that they don't focus on too much, but you can just tell where they clearly were a family who would like go out to eat all the time. Right. They're one of those families, even when they're having like a big dinner uh, and Jacob's like, why are we doing this again? We never do this. Clearly, yeah, they're always going out to eat. And I guess they they like, you know, the socialization aspect of being a part of this tight knit community, as they they call it earlier. And then once they become the pariahs, it's just, it's hard for them to... To understand really how they could just turn on them on a dime like that. Yeah, well, a lot of time, a lot of times, because you there have been movies and TV about this idea of what if your kid did something awful like this or was accused of doing something awful, and it's always framed as this like you know a parent's worst nightmare, and that's part of it is this whole thing of just like this community that you're in. They're never going to look at you the same. I think a lot of the thing uh, it comes up a few times in Defending Jacob, where Laurie will be like, this is going to follow him forever, no matter what. And this idea of just like this legacy now, this stain on them, which dovetails with Chris Evans and J.K. Simmons and that whole kind of thing of just like this, you know, legacy of crime, essentially. Which explains why he lied about, you know, his father and everything, which I... I, People get upset about that uh, in the show, but I, I'm glad they don't dwell on it too much because it makes a lot of sense why he would hide that. Sure, and, Especially yeah. seeing what happens to Jacob. It's yeah. one of those things where there are a lot of lies between Andy and Laurie, especially on Andy's part. But I feel like that one specifically is the one that you can allow because it, especially once you do get his father introduced, it's like, well, of course he hid this. He wanted yeah. to have a normal life of any kind. He had to hide this. Um, yeah, and also just in general, just, you know, I'm I'm apt to give Chris Evans the benefit of the doubt because look at that <laughs> face. <laughs> you come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And uh, now, uh, Joe, we're going to listen to your interview with Michelle Dockery and Chris Evans. Uh, What could you say was the big takeaway from this discussion, by the way? I think they both really enjoyed delving into the sort of psyche of these characters and trying to sort of work out how, you know, they're going to react to this. I think they they both talked about what a great sort of like filming environment this was with having, again, you know, the single writer, the single director, that it really did feel like a movie shoot where you get a lot of room to breathe. Um, so it really felt like they they enjoyed the the space that they got to work on it, which I thought was cool. Cool. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you for uh, talking to me today. Obviously, uh, interviews are very fun little prospects now, uh, <laughs> now that we're all separate. I wanted to start, first of all, congratulations on the show. It's fantastic. Um, 
I wanted to start with Michelle first, though. How did you come to the project and what attracted you to it specifically? Um, well, I, I was sent the first four scripts, which I loved. Um, I thought the writing was superb and I really loved the story. And I had an initial Skype chat with Morton and Mark and loved yeah. them and was already a fan of um, both of their work and particularly Morton's, Morton's work. And I, I just loved them. And I thought if these two are at the, the helm of this, we're onto something good. I like a crime genre. So I was attracted to it for that reason. But I love that it was so character driven and so much about the family. Um, yeah. Focuses, you know, more on the effects it has on the family in many ways than the whodunit aspect of it, which is right. what I, I found very, I thought this is going to be quite different um, than any other crime drama that I'd seen. Yeah, so that's how I came on, on board. And Chris was already on board by that point. Oh, yeah. And of course, I was, you know, thrilled to, um, you know, have the opportunity to work with Chris. And um, yeah, it's so much about the, the, the people as well that you're potentially going to be working with. That, that really attracted sure. me to the project. Of course. Yeah. And Chris, you not only are uh, starring on the show, but you're executive producer. So uh, how did that come about for you? Uh, it, it was, you know, sometimes the producerial role is about putting the project together. Sometimes it's just kind of saying, hey, you want to act in this? Also, you can be a producer. So, so right. this, this was more of the latter. I, I didn't throw this party. I was invited to it. But yeah, they, they, I only read the first script, I believe. But, but again, I initially, I liked the role. I liked the idea of a guy who, through some you know, childhood trauma, has built walls and, and buried some things. And, and uh, you know, like a lot of us do, just have no intention of really examining it and exploring it and then having all of that kind of exhumed in such a public way and 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 in a way that his choices have really kind of come back to to rear their head in some really nasty ways and and affected his family um but but more than anything else it was uh, mark and morton you know sitting down with them and uh he, i i they, they both had children around the same age you felt very quickly this was a very personal story to them. There was a lot of passion involved. And, and I like the idea of one voice for all eight episodes. You know, I think when you're doing something like this, it is very akin to literature, you know, the way you kind of revisit a book chapter to chapter. And sure, so, sure. so it felt like it should have the same voice. I, I, I almost don't even know how it would have worked without that. Um, but, but that was an appeal. And, and yeah, like I said, at the end of the day, it's a matter of who you're working with. Oh, definitely. Um, for, I think, the both of you, in your careers, you both spent sort of the bulk of the 2010s playing these sort of great and widely popular roles. And now in Defending Jacob, you're playing characters who are uh, not only departures from your previous characters, but also from like the tone and the scope of the project. Was that part of the appeal of what drew you to the show? Uh, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily the appeal. Um, you know, I, I never try and choose my projects based on perception. My creative appetite is mercurial enough to let me kind of uh, enjoy <laughs> variety. So, so right, I think if right. you start trying to cut your cloth according to the way you're seen, not only will you never accurately uh, understand what that perception is, but, but I think the tail starts wagging the dog. So, so no, it was just a matter of I had just finished a show in New York on, on stage and was looking for... Uh, well, I, actually, I was looking for uh, it was a number of things that I was um, hungry for, but but right. defending Jacob certainly fit. Uh, Michelle, what about you? I'm similar in a way that I don't, uh, you know, I'm not sort of strategic in in my. I don't have a plan um, necessarily of what I want to do next. Um, 
it's yeah. it all comes down to the material in the end and uh and I love that that spontaneity actually of what we do so I had no idea that I'd end up in Boston for six months which I loved uh but it's that that part of it appealed to me you know I do like working away from home and I've enjoyed working in the states um but it was really down to the character and this particular genre um that I was attracted to very cool um so a big part of the show I found is how the community reacts to your characters and your son being accused of this murder. The show is set in uh, Newton, Massachusetts. I know you guys filmed there around in uh, Massachusetts. Chris, I know you grew up sort of not too far from there. Did you bring any kind of uh, experience of sort of living either in or around towns like these to your performance? Sure. I mean, that's sometimes the toughest thing to bring to a character because it's not something you can convey through dialogue or through your walk or, you know, it's it's... It's it's just, um, you know, I don't even know. It, it, it was so nice to kind of every day show up on a set and say, I recognize this. I know this. And, and it just it lends itself to trying to bring that really intangible, subtle sense of authenticity to a character. And, and again, it doesn't have to come out as an accent. It doesn't have to come out in your clothing. It's just... It's just right. it's, it's when all the creative elements of a, of a single frame come together uh, and, and they fit, um, it, it really brings a setting to life. Um, so so it's, it's nice that I already had a little bit of a leg up in, in knowing exactly what this place is like. Right. Was it kind of a conscious choice on the part of the production to uh, not do the sort of like New England accent, I guess, for lack of it? You know what I mean? Like to not set it quite so heavily. I mean, I, I don't know that it was product. You know, I, I thought about it. Um, believe me, I'm, I'm I'm waiting to use it. I'm it's it's, it's in the chamber, ready to go. I'm dying I saw to use that Super Bowl it. ad. I but, know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. know, right? Yeah. I know. But uh, yeah. but you don't want to use it gratuitously, unnecessarily. It has to make sure it, it has to fit. Um, and, and it just it it almost felt to me like it would be a distraction, an unnecessary flex. Um, so so I they, they never asked me to do it. I'm sure if I had asked. If I could, they would have let me, but but it never felt quite appropriate. So right, I'm saving Right, it. Yeah. Michelle, is that a secret weapon you're also saving in your arsenal? <laughs> the uh, Boston accent. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I absolutely adore the Boston accent, but it's a hard one. And I love doing an accent. So I, I imagine was, it would be very daunting. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was pleased I didn't have to put that work into it. Um, sure, yeah. But yeah, possibly one, one day. I'm, I'm sure I'd have to have a coach. Chris would have to be my coach for a Boston accent. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, Michelle, you have obviously worked on TV series before, uh, Downton Abbey and Good Behavior. Uh, and Chris, you also, you had a TV series very sort of early on in your career. So you've both sort of worked in that medium. But Defending Jacob, well, obviously a TV series. It's a closed narrative. It's the same writer and director. Uh, and sort of these days, the distinctions between film and TV are becoming a lot hazier anyway. Do those differences and distinctions in format enter into what you guys do on your level or is that something that you're able to sort of you know it's you know the characters and the work for you guys um i mean i'm i'm certainly beginning to see a change in that there is a little more time that is carved out in television i mean i remember when you know you had two takes and you were done and we had to move sure. on to the next thing and you know there were certainly times like that in the early days on downton um but with this, it felt like we were, each episode was like doing a film. Um, yeah. And Mark and Morton were 
just the most, you know, generous, collaborative creators to work with because whenever there was a scene where we all, you know, we would read it through and it required, you know, really taking it apart and, you know, navigating our way through it, they would just, you know, the tools would be put down and we would find the time. And and these days, television is becoming, it's it's like watching a movie. Um, yeah. You know, television screens are bigger and, you know, there's so much creatively that that you need the time uh, to make it what it is. So, like you say, it's even becoming hazy on our side of it because I'm right. I'm seeing that the, the it's not much different from doing a film. Um, yeah. It just it's just a longer period of time, of course, because you're doing eight hours as opposed to two. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, Chris. For you, that's it's been I twenty something years, I guess, since uh, you did your first TV yeah. show. So I imagine, Jesus. you know, so oh my much. God. So fucking old. Sorry, I didn't mean Sorry, to. I, I didn't swore. mean to blow the whistle on you like that. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it was a long time, but but yeah, I, I agree with Michelle. I mean, it's it's you know the the luxury is that you have just more chance to tell the story. You know, I we we we've said a few times in interviews that if this story had been made as a film, you know, twenty years ago, this would have been a two hour movie of of, of pure engine. You know, it would sure. have been all plot and it would have been very uh, exciting. But but a lot of moments wouldn't have been able to breathe. Um, and it's really nice, you know, knowing you have ostensibly an eight-hour movie. So you right. really can allow um, for, for the, the, the contours of each moment to, to kind of come into focus. And, I mean, it's, it's a long shoot. But, again, if, if you're working with the right people, this is exactly what you want to be doing. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and like Michelle said, I, I never once felt rushed on this set. We always felt, I mean, it, it could have been, uh, it, just, it stands up to any other job I've ever done in terms of, the space we got, the respect we got as actors on sure. set between, you know, between action and cut. Ugh, that's pretentious. <laughs> no, it sounds very cool. Uh, watching the show, there's so many scenes of Andy and Lori having these uh, hushed and sort of desperate moments where you both sort of walk up to the threshold of saying a thing, but then you don't say it because you maybe don't even want to admit it to yourselves. How do you, in scenes you had together, how did you approach these moments where your characters are sort of very much not on the same wavelength? I just lean on Michelle. It's the beauty of working with a great actor or actress because M- Michelle's character obviously has the most trouble coping with the circumstance, whereas Andy, I think, has had a lifetime developing tools necessary to compartmentalize and, and bury certain, certain issues that he doesn't want to address. So, so Laurie, Michelle had the challenge of every day playing someone just barely hanging on. Every day is a new challenge, and that's incredibly yeah. challenging, incredibly challenging, because a lot of the time she's doing it without dialogue. She's doing it with her face. Um, so, again, it's, it's incredibly easy as an actor to fall into that, you know, to let, let, let that performance kind of be the North Star. And if you lose your way, just, just listen. Just watch sure. Michelle do what she does and, and just follow her. It was very much the same for me. I, you know, I felt I lent on Chris, you know, in those times. And I certainly felt very held up in those moments by Chris. Yeah. Um, and as the journey of it was going on, towards the end, we did that big scene together, the two of us, when Laurie finally breaks and says, I think he did it. Yeah. Um, it felt there was something so liberating about doing that scene. I mean, first of all, it's a brilliant scene, brilliantly written scene. And it was like doing a scene from a play because it was a long yeah. scene and sometimes there you really get a chance to kind of get so into it 
we were kind of so energized by it because it was the truth coming out which yeah. they'd been holding on to and you know having to restrain so much of those feelings um and it was great the way it was scheduled because it was towards the end i love that scene that's one of my favorites yeah me too I actually, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I had actually, like, in my notes, I had written down to ask you guys about the scene in Mexico where, you know, Andy's, you know, drunk on the liquor bottle. And then it's sort of this moment of their stories kind of snap together. And Lori kind of sort of, you know, loses it at that moment. And did you know going into filming that scene that just like, this is the big one, this is sort of, you know, the one, the, the one in Mexico or the one in the kitchen? The one I'm uh, talking about, the one in the kitchen is the one I think you guys were talking about uh, just yeah. previously. But the one I also, I think the two of them kind of go hand in hand because yeah. it's sort of like she's admitting something to him in the in the earlier scene and then Andy's admitting something, you know, in the Mexico scene. Yeah, it's probably the most honest each character is. You know, I think that moment in the kitchen is the first time Laurie speaks the truth and says it out loud. And it's probably incredibly liberating to just say out loud the things she's been thinking and Andy, the same way in Mexico. I mean, that's, I think Andy's been doing a lot of this uh, burying his whole life. You know, this isn't just this circumstance. I think Andy has spent a lifetime not addressing things. And this was just the pressure release valve and it just came spilling out of him. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the most naked he is in the entire series. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not only liberating for the character, it's liberating for us as actors. It's really, it's really an enjoyable scene to, to dive into. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's really something. Um, Michelle, I wanted to ask you specifically, um, your character has such an interesting relationship with Jacob on the show that is kind of a departure from what we think of as this kind of, you know, fiercely protective mother sort of archetype, where uh, instead, or I, I guess in addition to that, you have a lot of doubt and fear about what he might have done. Uh, was it a challenge for you to balance this, you know, a loving mom with a suspicious mom for the character. Yes, yeah, it was and I was I was constantly questioning myself and the character as it was it was going on and it was for me it was about striking a balance. So I I wanted her to be a very affectionate mother and and that to be kind of established quite early on. Um because really up until the moment where she begins to relive the past with Jacob and what a troubled child he was and she begins to kind of unravel all of that past it's it was a tricky one to balance because I didn't it was important for me that she didn't come across cold or she begun to shut down too early um with her son I mean there's that very uh important moment where Andy says to Laurie towards the end you know the way you look at him because by that point she's convinced he did it. Right. And it, it was important that it built to that moment. So for her, it was restraining all of those feelings and that truth that perhaps she knows deep down. And, yeah. and, and, and the love that she feels for her son. I mean, it's unconditional love and it's whatever, it's what she says to Andy, you know, even though he did it, even if he did it, I would still love him. And, I wanted yeah. that to be really believed in that moment and sure. that she just yeah. didn't turn on him. So it was, a, it was a fine balance. And I've said in some interviews, and Chris has said this before, I think as you, as we go through this as actors, you know, through your careers, career and as you play different parts, I'm learning you cannot judge your character. Yeah. You know, and I've, I've done it in the past, you know. There's moments where Lady Mary was an absolute 
cow to her sister and I was like this is not on um and really struggled with that in the past you know yeah. and, and so much of it is about wanting to be liked you know sure. or, and and you have to leave all of that at the door and just you know dwell on the essence of that character and and you know and what is within and and that and she has her reasons for feeling that way yeah I was watching uh, an interview with uh, Jaden Martell, who plays uh, Jacob, and he had said that when he was talking to Morton before filming, he had asked, you know, do you think, you know, Jacob has done it? And the advice that he had gotten was, you decide that for yourself, but don't tell anybody. Um, I was wondering sort of like what kind of a dynamic then that creates as you're filming those scenes of like, you know that he knows, but he's not, you know what I mean? Did that sort of like... You know, was that a kind of a double layer of things as you're filming? I mean, that certainly lends itself to the to the subject matter. You know what I mean? I mean, that, yeah. that's whether it's in, you know, as as Chris or as Andy, it's the same thing. I'm wondering if Jaden, you know, knows or if yeah. Jacob knows, you know. So so I think that that uncertainty is a useful tool on and off screen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Chris, you had already filmed Knives Out, obviously with Jaden before this. And also, I was I did a little uh, research, and I saw that Jaden also played the younger version of you in a romantic comedy you made called Playing It Cool. That's right. I didn't even know that. He told me that. He, he told me that on the set of Defending Jacob. He said, you know, uh, you know, it's actually our third time working together. I said, no, when? When? What? He said, I actually played you. <laughs> yeah, I, I had no idea. That's so amazing. So is this some kind of like two-person repertory company now? You yeah, I know, just right? Of- <laughs> well, believe me, if, if, I, I would be so lucky to continue working with Jaden. That, that, that kid is not only just one of the most brilliant actors I've worked with, but just so wise beyond his years. What is he, 16, yeah. 17, something like that? I, I, I don't even know what I was doing at that age, but he's, 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 he, he's another level. Yeah, yeah, he's really good in this. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, so it's it's a definitely, it's a dark show. I don't think I'm going out on a limb uh, by saying that, sort of, it's, you know, heavy kind of a subject matter. Was there anything that you guys did on set for levity, or was that something that you were not really interested in as you're filming? Do you want to sort of, like, keep yourself in it? No, we had a good time. We yeah, had a good time. time. It was important. I mean, you, have, you have to balance it with this this subject matter like this. You have to blow off steam. You, you can't sustain that headspace for whatever, four or five months, whatever it was. Sure. And luckily the crew was fantastic. The crew was, the camaraderie on crew was, honestly, honestly, I'll say it's it's the most, uh, you know, the, the morale on set was the highest I've ever seen. The crew got along so well with each other and it didn't hurt that I lived 20 minutes from where we were filming. So, you know, a lot of weekends we'd say, hey, come on back to my place. Let's uh, let's, let's tear this one up. Oh, that's very cool to be able to do that sort of in your in your backyard. Oh, it was that's great. Awesome. Like literally yeah. in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you, Michelle? Any specific sort of uh, like moments from filming that you remember? I mean, so many. I mean, this is, and as Chris was just saying, you know, more on that, you know, we had some really good times offset yeah. and it was so necessary when the, you know, the content of what you're doing is so intense and dark. Um, it was important for us to have fun and, and for me to let go of the, the emotional stuff and to, you know, do sure. so, to have a really nice time. But just the the whole, you know, process of it all and the journey of these three characters and it was such a joy to work with everyone and Chris is such a generous, brilliant actor to work with and I felt like we, you know, all of us kind of worked so well together. I'd jump at the chance for us all to get back together again. 
Um, and, uh, and, and working with the likes of Cherry Jones. I mean, I just... Oh, my God. I can't imagine. She's such an inspiration and just such a brilliant woman and person. And, and it was just magic. And then JK, um, Betty Gabriel. I mean, it was yeah. just a, such an incredible cast. And, and, and everybody was just so, just so much fun to work with. There was a lot of humor, you know, going around. Yeah. It was like doing a comedy offset. That's very cool. It sounds like it sounds like you guys had uh, a really good time filming it. Um, thank you guys so much for uh, for taking the time to talk to me about this. This was really uh, this is a good chat. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, Joe. Thank you. So that has been this episode of Little Gold Men. You can follow me on Twitter at Lafergs, L-A-F-E-R-G-S. Uh, you can find my writing uh, multiple places: the AV Club, uh, Pace Magazine vulture and i will tweet about that yeah and uh you can find me i'm joe reed i am on twitter at joe reed reed spelled r-e-i-d i am uh the managing editor at primetimer.com and i host the this had oscar buzz podcast which you can find new episodes of every week latoya thank you so much for talking to me about this very uh i will say dark yet rewarding show yeah uh Thanks for talking to me, Joe, because we got to talk about Chris Evans, and that's always good. Always a good time. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Thank you.